here we are chatting about the second instrumental track of the album, B, which some would say is just the same thing as A. Why the <laughs> heck did they do this to us? But we are we are here to tell you no. Those people are it's wrong. Not exactly the yeah. same. They are wrong. Exactly. But in in all honesty, as Stephen will talk about in a little bit here, there are a lot of similarities. It's musically pretty much the same, except for one very awesome difference. <laughs> one of my favorite things uh, that they do on this album from a production and songwriting standpoint. Can't wait to dig into that uh, towards the end of this. But like we talked about in the A section, this is kind of a, a, a period of transition, of, of liminality, to use the kind of academic term of transitioning between two points. And we talked about kind of either a descending or an ascending feeling into A out of everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. And that was a really cool conversation because we talked about if the pre-A section of the album is the actual ending of the narrative, then it's a descent into oblivion or <laughs> nothingness or whatever comes beyond, who knows, or it's the ascension into the start of the narrative or the narrator's remembering of the start of the narrative, however we want to... Yeah parse that in a postmodern perspective. Yeah, but um, Joel, I think you had a nice reference that you wanted to bring up. Yeah, so there's this feeling, I think, in both tracks of sort of being pulled into a kind of vortex or void or something like that. And as I was thinking about B this week, I started thinking about Kurt Vonnegut because... Who wouldn't? <laughs> um, and there's this moment in the novel Breakfast of Champions. Breakfast of Champions is really the first novel of Vonnegut's where he just fully embraces this very self-referential, postmodern, kind of quintessentially yeah. paradigmatically postmodern method, I guess, um, where he puts himself into his own novel as the author of the novel he writes himself into the novel toward the end. He's meeting his characters. All the these kinds of shenanigans happen. But there's the novel ends with Vonnegut setting his characters free, telling one character that that's what he's going to do, and then leaving the novel through a void. And that's the language that he uses. And so I just wanted to read the end of this passage because I th I feel like there's some resonances with what we've been talking about, particularly as B is a transition into this next phase of the, of the narrative. So this is the end of the novel Breakfast of Champions. I am approaching my 50th birthday, Mr. Trout, I said. I am cleansing and renewing myself for the very different sorts of years to come. Under similar spiritual conditions, Count Tolstoy freed his serfs. Thomas Jefferson freed his slaves. I'm going to set at liberty all the literary characters who have served me so loyally during my writing career. You are the only one I am telling. For the others, tonight will be a night like any other night. Arise, Mr. Trout. You are free. You are free. He arose shamblingly. I might have shaken his hand, but his right hand was injured, so our hands remained dangling at our sides. Bon voyage, I said. I disappeared. I somersaulted lazily and pleasantly through the void, which is my hiding place when I dematerialize. Trout's cries to me faded as the distance between us increased. 
His voice was my father's voice. I heard my father, and I saw my mother in the void. My mother stayed far, far away because she had left me a legacy of suicide. A small hand mirror floated by. It was a leak with a mother-of-pearl handle and frame. I captured it easily, held it up to my own right eye, which looked like this. Here was what Kilgore Trout cried out to me in my father's voice. Make me young, make me young, make me young. And then there's, you know, this novel's full of pen drawings of Vonnegut. So, you know, he's drawn a picture of his eye shedding a tear. And at the end of that Trout shouting, make me young, he's written in huge block letters, etc. ETC period, which is the other, his other refrain similar to and so on that he uses throughout Slaughterhouse-Five and other novels. And I guess what's interesting about this to me is that, so, I mean, there's a bunch of different ways you could take this, but one is that Trout as a character, right, has been offered this opportunity of freedom, right? He's He's been uh, set free by his creator, so to speak, and hmm. he doesn't take it, right? Instead, he shouts at, you know, what he really wants is to be made young again. <laughs> Throughout the novel, the, you know, Vonnegut kind of really puts Trout, like, through the ringer. He goes through all these, like, really embarrassing, bizarre situations, and his age is really sort of poked fun at in a lot of ways. And the only hmm. thing that that he wants is not freedom, but youth. And it's, I mean, I think that it's, there, there's a lot of things that Vonnegut is doing here but one one of the things that i think is being said is that we don't we never accept the things that would actually benefit us right the things that we want are the things that are ultimately not not necessarily worthless i mean in the case of trout though i think that right it's it's pointless like why be young right if you are trapped still right and not free like you're, you're right. It doesn't matter. Right. And I think that there's something about the, the narrator in A to B life who's wrestling with something similar, right? He knows yeah. that he knows what he is supposed to do, right? He knows what the, what the right choice is and yet he can't make it. Yep. And, and so, yeah, so there's, there's a similarity there. I think there's also something to be said about Vonnegut hearing the voice of his father Right. And Aaron also will hear the voice of his father in relation yeah. also to this idea of youth and, you know, versus strength. Right. You're you're far too young yep. to fight. Right. The line yeah, of the ghost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So the, I think that there's and, and then the, th the third thing that I'll say is just that, you know, there's this interesting aspect of narration here, right? The Vonnegut, the I in this novel is supposed to be sort of mistakenly taken to be Vonnegut himself, as if Vonnegut is writing something autobiographical or is putting his real self or something into the novel. Right. And and that's wrong. He's, he's trying to sort of mess with the reader by creating this persona of himself as the author. It's not him. It's a Vonnegut character in a way. 
And I think that there's a similar sort of, I mean, it, it doesn't quite work the same way in, in, in song form. I, I don't think simply because Aaron is obviously writing about a real experience. He is not trying to intentionally distance himself from this narrator, right, that we've been talking about. At the same time, uh, I think that there is a kind of real metaphysical distance that Aaron the person mm. is not Aaron the narrator in in the songs. That there's always, even in 2002, a separation between the two. That there's still a way to read, and this is obviously a very postmodern sort of interpretation. Sure. Um, but that there's a way to read A to B life in this kind of similar way, right? That the I is the Aaron persona, not Aaron himself. Yeah. And and so I I mean we're we're like basically at the end of the record now. Um and that's maybe an yeah. idea that we, <laughs> that we should have introduced toward the beginning. But yeah, I don't know. So no, there's a couple of things there. I'll start with what you were just saying. I see that as evidence of our theory of the broken narrative structure, the mm-hmm. the, the out of order yeah. narrative structure. That realization is more obvious to us now entering the second act narratively, but the final act chronologically right. of mm-hmm. of us hearing the album, which is really neat um, to say the least. But then, if you look at A to B life in comparison to the rest of their work, mm-hmm. I think Aaron gets all the more self referential, but it becomes more like what Vonnegut is doing, yes. and less like I'm telling you a fictionalized account of a real thing that happened. That we get we get further and further removed from Aaron, the real person, in terms of the events discussed right. in subsequent writings and more interestingly and this is again a very postmodern thing we actually see more about Aaron the person because of that like the direction he, he takes us away from what actually happened we see more about his specifically spiritual but also just yeah. the progression of himself as a real right. person yeah, yeah. I also think with with songs as a format, you know, in their own way, any song that's directed towards another person has an inherent kind of distance. Like if you just imagine for a moment, I'm not sure if either of you have ever done this. You've actually written a a song for a real other person that where all the second person references in it are for that person. If you were to go to that person and say, hey, I wrote this for you and then just maintain eye contact the entire time that you sing it as though you're having a conversation that sounds so terrifying and nerve wracking yeah. and it's ridiculous, really right? Intense. Like that's not, that's not how those things work. You want them to listen to it and hear your voice as something separated from you where yeah. the voice mm. in the song is communicating to them, not you as a human sitting in front of them. Right. So there's, right. there's a kind of distance that I think just goes with any sort of artistic medium in the middle. But I, th- I think that's on full display here. I also think, you know, within that little uh, segment there at the very end of this novel, Thinking about it from Trout's perspective, his creator has just said, you're free, and then vanishes. Yes. Like, like that's not a comforting thing. Like, oh, like the the being that made me has just disappeared and said I'm on my own. Like, talking about me without you. Right. From from this other character's perspective, he's just been abandoned by his god, more or less. That's it. Yeah. And given freedom in, in exchange. And 
Is that what we want? Can I, uh, can I, yeah. right, right. right. I, I, I'll, I'll take that to my, my logical end, which is always Tolkien, um, yeah. in the, in, in his fictionalized, in his legendarium, as, as folks call it, um, there's, there's two groups of people that are the children of the one, the, of God. And in, in, the, in the text, his name is Eru, the one, or Iluvatar in Elvish. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Um, so the children of Iluvatar are elves and men. He adopts the dwarves, too, so no one tweet at me about ex- excluding them. He just <laughs> didn't create them. That's a whole other thing. But... Anyway, the elves are much more akin to the the demigods in this. And if you've ever read um, C.S. Lewis's um, space trilogy, the demigods are very similar to these beings in C.S. Lewis's space trilogy. It's really, really great. Everyone should read that trilogy too. But anyway, these are kind of the people that shape the world. They do, they do the things. They're like archangels if you wanted mm-hmm. to make a direct comparison to... Christian theology and and Jewish too. Anyway, the elves stay within the world, and I mean world as in the known, contained, physical universe. There's infinite stuff beyond this known, contained, real universe, and that's where Eru Iluvatar lives, or is. Lives (laughs) is a weird concept for an immortal forever (laughs) being. Anyway... The elves never leave that until the end of the world, as in, like, the breaking of all things. Mm-hmm. Men do. Humans do. They go potentially reside with a Luvatar. Potentially they go off somewhere else for something no one knows because the elves who are what it, – it's not immortal. That's not technically correct because they – isn't like amortal? They don't die unless somebody kills them? So that that is a good word for it, but – um. <laughs> What some people call it is serially longeval. They don't die <laughs> unless they, they can. T- I mean, there are elves that are like 100,000 years old, yeah. right? They, like they, they've never died in terms of the existence of the cosmos, in terms of the waking up of elves. But what's really cool about this is kind of that like you are utterly free. And they call death, humans dying and leaving the circles of the world, they call that the gift of men, hmm. which doesn't feel like a gift, but in a sense, there that could mean that there's something greater than what I have done for you in my creation of this small, finite world. You being able to exit that and go beyond it is yeah. uh, a terrifying thing. Like, that doesn't sound nice, but I get it. I get Trout's, you know, assertion, like, make me young again, because that that's... Start the game over again. Let's let's keep going around the wheel, not yeah. move beyond the confines of what you've created for me. Well, and there's also this sense in, I mean, the Vonnegut, the I, the narrator in this novel is so mm-hmm. is so weird and kind of off-putting. I mean, he just kind of drops this knowledge on Trout and sort of awkwardly introduces himself and tries to make him, you know, tries to introduce himself with a kind of like self-importance, right? Like, hey, I'm your creator. Aren't you so excited to meet me? (laughs) And it's like, yeah, imagine, imagine if, if God like introduced himself that way to you, you'd be like, what? (laughs) 
what this is n- you <laughs> yeah. are not at all how I thought you were going to be right so there's there's that right and then he drops this freedom thing on him and it's like all he can muster right it's a very human moment in a way I mean this yeah. is this is a big thing with Vonnegut right is the absurdity of of our human existence right and that like yeah. we don't like we may aspire to greatness like we may aspire to a kind of nobility or something like that but in the end we're going to we're going to mess it up like like trout does right and and just yeah. kind of blurt out like the first thing that comes to our mind and you know we always imagine ourselves saying the right thing or think you know we never say the right thing yep. in the moment we we think about it later right. and are like oh man i wish i I wish I had said this, right? I wish it had gone this way. And that's sort of how I imagine this moment. I think that there's so much humanness in Aaron's storytelling. You see a lot of this Mm -hmm. kind of absurd humility in a way in uh, I mean, we'll get to this in in later albums, but you know, one of the first things that comes to mind is in Fox's Dream and the Log Flume, where he asks if the woman he's proposing to, if she ever imagined throwing kids off of the top of the uh, Ferris wheel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one of my favorite lines. Right. I mean, and then and she says no, and he says, "Oh, neither do I." Right? That I mean, it's it's that kind <laughs> yeah. of thing, right? Where there's this. Yeah, just this very embarrassing kind of awkwardness that is, it is, it's simultaneous. Like, I remember, yeah, the first time I heard that line, I was like, wow, what a really messed up thing to imagine, Um, you know? Uh, But then, (laughs) and to, and how even more embarrassing to say that out loud to somebody, and even more embarrassing that the person you said it out loud to is someone that you are about to get down on one knee with your grandmother's ring and propose to. Right. I mean, you know, so there's there's the kind of awkward embarrassment of it, but that is also, I think, showing something that is endearing and also important about humanity. So we'll we'll save mm. that discussion for when we get to 10 stories in four seasons. <laughs> right. I guess so. But because you, because you brought it up, I think it's worth, it's worth asking a big picture question that we don't have to answer right now. And that is that whether it's, it's safe to presume that all these references about a past relationship that are going to follow in future albums are all talking about the same basic story that's on A to B life. And if they hmm. are, then even that awkward moment at the amusement park there might be a glimpse into a real conversation that happened where what you get in A to B life is him trying to go back and recollect it and say what he thinks he should have said, not what he actually said. And so we get the cleaned up version here on this first record. I mean, we know, we know for sure in Catch Frost, the Foxes, it is the same relationship because he uses her name. Definitively. Yeah. 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 After that, I don't, uh, that's a good question. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> I, I assume that from here until 10 stories, we've basically only got one romantic relationship to reference. And then the last two albums is different. Yeah. There's, there's lines about still technically a virgin right, after yeah. 
27 27 or whatever whatever number he wants to say uh when you know changing the lyrics moving forward in the future (laughs) that's definitely one right way to read it uh you heard it here first that that might be the assumption we're going into moving (laughs) forward we might find evidence to refute that both yeah i don't know literally yeah and and in the lyrics yeah i mean, clearly the last two albums are him grappling with getting married having children yeah maybe just one child in pale horses but anyway so that's a really interesting way to look at it it paints a lot of this in a much more depressing light i think but yeah we'll we'll get there One other just offshoot literary reference while we're eking as as much (laughs) content out of a song with no words as we can. (laughs) That we've already heard. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) That that cry to to make me young also sounds to me like basically what Faust asks for. Mm, mm -hmm. He's coming to the end of his life. Yeah, he's he's an old man. And and what does he want? Even if it costs him his eternal soul, he just wants to be young again for a moment. Right. Yeah, and and there it actually might might be a Faust reference in I I yeah, yeah. It, that that sounds familiar to me. That wouldn't be surprising hmm. to me if if Vonnegut actually did have Faust in mind when he wrote yeah. that and making himself sort of the devil. <laughs> In terms of getting a chance to go back and to start over again, like we've had on this album, this opening section of songs that that bleed into this track A, which we've we've talked about as sort of a new beginning. And so when you get to track B, you're immediately thrown into the same sort of question uh, narratively and musically like, OK, we're hearing this really similar sound to what we did on this track before. What is what is that doing? You know, what what kind of headspace are we supposed to be in as we're following along with this narrator as we go? And in this sort of like warp uh, wormhole, whatever, whatever sci fi image we want to conjure up as, as we hear this music. Right. The substance of it is almost identical to what was in a now coming out of everything was beautiful and nothing hurt as that fades into this track called a we've already been very solidly established in the key of B minor. And so when you have these B minor chords at the end of everything was beautiful, nothing hurt. And then some A naturals start getting introduced. It softens the edge of that, of that B minor and, and pulls you back into what eventually gives you the, the start of gentlemen. Something I would, I would like to do is, is do a quick musical recap of the whole album up until B to talk about why the sort of harmonic landing spot that we have on B sets us up for the end of the record. Please. So very briefly where the album starts. On bullet to binary is an a minor. It's that kind of music. So we started a minor fast forward to the ghost, we drop down a whole step to the key of G. 
but we still have a lot of A, B. We have a lot of A's and B's that are sort of decorated on top of that G. Yeah. We move from the ghost down into nice and blue, which is in F sharp. So we've gone from A to G to F sharp. And towards the end of it, we get this move down with, with an F natural in it. So we have this kind of descending figure. And where you think that might land is on E, right? A, G, F sharp, F, E. And if it was going to go down to E, then the natural thing that that music wants to do is resolve back up to A again. It's kind of a modification of this Andalusian cadence that I mm -hmm. talked about in the last episode. Oh, yeah. But just with this, this chromatic extension. That's not what happens. We never get that E as a sort of a place that will launch us back into A. What we get instead is track one, A, track two, G, track three, F sharp, pulling down, and then track four, once we get into everything is beautiful and nothing hurt, it just slides back up to that F sharp again. And then the second half of that song resolves very hard into B minor. And so if the thing had followed its natural progression, it's going to resolve to A minor. Wow. Or A major, either one. Because of this motion, it resolves up to B minor, and that's where the narrative ends. Hmm. So we go from that B minor resolution at the end of Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt. We soften it with that A. We get this figure back and forth that sounds like a voice crying out, not make me young, but something that to me at least sounds like you know, mm -hmm. which also feels fitting if you picture this Vonnegut scene mm -hmm. again about the person's knowledge and what do they do with mm -hmm. it. Again, you can go back to the Eden story if you want to imagine all the implications of what knowledge means in a case like that and what the difference between freedom and the presence of God means in a case like that. Yeah. And and we we land in this, this liminal space that instead of staying in B minor or going wherever else it might, makes this hard line <laughs> switch where it tries to be sort of in A minor and B major at the same time. And it just sounds like this clash. So we have the beginning of Gentleman is that sound. The beginning of Be Still Child is that same figure just moved up a third. So we get uh, a tritone above an A, a tritone above a C. And if that was going to just continue, we would get that sound, which again brings us to an E, hmm. which would resolve back to A, but we don't get it. We get A with a tritone above, C with a tritone above, and instead of this E with a tritone above, which kind of completes this, this triad here, yeah. we get this weird sort of quasi D major thing that happens and we know who our enemies are, so. 
like it's it's trying to deny the direction that things are going or something. And where we end up at the end of We Know Who Our Enemies Are is in B flat, which, as I've argued before, is it's a weird shift tonally. It's a hard shift in the middle of the song. And it also seems like this sort of denial Hmm. that that the choice has to be made between A and B, that it's trying to have it both ways and just land in the middle. So as I've said a couple times now, what keeps getting avoided is any kind of E chord that could resolve to A, either major or minor. Hmm. When at the end of track eight, we know who our enemies are, we land in B flat. The next place we go and I never said that I was brave, is F. That's just a bunch of letters, I know, but I'll try to make this clear. <laughs> so we didn't get that earlier, but now it feels like the album's trying to reestablish B-flat as the tonal center because we know who our enemies are, lands there. F is the dominant of B-flat and wants to resolve back up to B flat again. So it's really trying to get there. Right. And so it's like the way, the way the music is pulling, what it wants to do is to get out of this song. I never said that I was brave and land in B flat and just be done with it and have this sort of in between <laughs> yeah. space that it can end on. And we don't get that. <laughs> uh, you know, we have this B flat like fake out ending that fades out and then comes back yeah. again at the end of, we know who right. our enemies yeah. are. I never said that I was brave has this repeated pattern. These four notes keep looping. It's a B flat, a C, E flat, F, B flat. It wants to get down to B flat again and it, and it just can't. It gets interrupted midway through this musical loop of these chords that want to kind of hang out in this B flat sound space and what you get instead is the track B. Which is a tritone away from that F. The B is, is the opposite, like the track B, as well as the pitch B, are the opposite musical pole from where track nine just was. Wow, okay. So the music comes in and interrupts this progression, and it's an awkward shift. Like, it's, it's very different from the move from track four into track five, which feels very smooth and flowing. This movement out of I Never Said That I Was Brave into this track B is a harsher sound because we're moving from a song that's hanging out with F as the main pitch to... So we get this sort of tritone relationship from one song to the next. So that's how we get to track B. Wow. I don't know how easy all that is to follow just by listening because you're not sitting here looking at the keyboard with me as I'm playing. And if you, dear listener, don't know music theory and all that is just gibberish, I'm sorry. Well, here, let, let me try, if if I could, let me try to just summarize what I feel like yeah. we just covered. So yeah, I think overall the album has this pattern of... T 
te- sort of teasing you with resolution, but it doesn't ever resolve. Right. Like when you get to, because I do think that there's, if anybody has ever recorded with someone before, worked with an actual sound engineer or producer, I had the opportunity a couple times, but they do talk to you about like the order of the tracks and like what key everything is in and transitioning from one track to the next, like all that stuff is goes into consideration. It's not like, you know, you just go in there and you're like, here are my songs. Let's just throw them all together. Right. I mean, it, this stuff is, is thought about. And so, you know, what Steven is saying about like the key of each song sort of going in this pattern that, was thought about. You know, I don't know to what extent, but certainly the transition from everything is beautiful into A versus the transition from yeah. I never said that I was brave into B. I mean, B could have been in any key they wanted it to be. Yeah. They could have made it a not a tritone transition. Right. Right. They they could have made it whatever they wanted. Yeah. I, I would think. I mean, unless they had to make it, put it in a in a key in, that would work in relation to silencer, if that was what was guiding the decision there. But I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get we'll get there. <laughs> but even then, I mean, didn't they change the key in this version in the album version of "I Never Said That I Was Brave" from the EP? Or was that? Yep. Oh, yeah. 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 So, yeah, yeah, so yeah, they yeah, right. they made a knowing a conscious effort to change this to have it make sense right following so, we know who our enemies right. so, are. So back to the summary. So there's this avoidance of resolution, right? That exactly that creates a yeah. mood across the whole mm-hmm. record. Right. It creates a feeling of perhaps of unease in a way. Right. Mm-hmm. And and then the I, I think the other important point is which I just kind of mentioned is the contrast between the transition into A versus the transition into B, right? That A is this very smooth sort of accepting (laughs) transition and B is harsh. It's not something that your ear wants to hear, right? And you don't need to know anything about music theory to have that experience, right? Because our ears get trained to hear things in a certain way. That's just right? That's music psychology or whatever. <laughs> right? Sure. No, totally. And we're going to see that there is a a roughness to both of the concluding songs on this album. They're, they're in their own mm-hmm. way. So that transition kind of helps enter us into that in a sense. It's very exciting to have this yeah. revealed. Thank you, Stephen. Um, You're welcome. Yeah. And I think th- we'll, we'll get there in, in the next two episodes, but I think the way that the central key area of each of the songs, yep. the the kind of loop that it spells out over the whole album mm-hmm. makes perfect sense to me. I, music, music itself is a form of discourse. It doesn't need lyrics yeah. to say something. With lyrics, it puts it into our left brain in a much more concrete, specific way for us to understand some yeah. kind of image and narrative and whatever. But, there, but there's something about the way the music works that that we're able to follow. Mm-hmm. And, and relate it to our experience. So I think, yes. I, just, I think, I think that's been the most fun for me that I actually really didn't expect when we started this journey on this album mm. is just to see how well that story gets told, regardless of these fabulous lyrics that are, that are put on top of it. All. There's something about the smooth transition and the rough transition that again, bolsters some of this, this narrative flow we're talking about. Let's look at where, 
the narrator was at the end of Everything Was Beautiful, smooth transition into, I, I kind of think that plays into the reading of, it's the beginning of the narrative. Now we're moving into the beginning of the narrative, but from a reflective, like it, it already happened. And so let me reimagine these things mm-hmm. in a way that could yeah. have been better as we were talking about earlier. Right. And this yeah. now is the middle of that tension of, I know the right thing to do, but I just can't yeah. hold on to it. I know it intellectually, but I can't grasp it and, and be lost in the fire to make a reference from several albums in the future. <laughs> I just want to say one one word again about the third act, the first section of the album, the first four tracks. The harmonic motion is A to B, appropriately so. Once we get into this track called A and then go into the second batch of songs, from Gentleman through I Never Said That I Was Brave, mm-hmm. the harmonic motion is A to F. That A to F motion is the first sound you hear on the album. So. Okay. Yeah. That's how bullet to binary starts. So if we want to talk about what, however this thing loops around this musical moment that starts bullet to binary in a way functions almost like a remembrance Mm -hmm. of this whole a period of the album. It's like looking back and just in small form. And that could resolve. I'm learning how to choose the right audio apps for you. There's my watch trying to talk to me. (laughs) Anyway, the entire section from A through I Never Said That I Was Brave gets put into a little tiny microcosm in the intro to Bullet to Binary. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Oh, my God. Well, and we'll get there, especially with cure for pain being the closing track yeah. but i i want yeah. i'm excited to see how that is set up or not yeah yep does it play into the resolution or the lack of resolution well and we'll see yeah but steven did you want to talk a little bit about the other thing that makes b different i do i do so the thing that makes the track b substantially different than the track a is not the basic patterns of the drums guitars little synthesizer or whatever, but it's this new line that gets added. Okay, so there's just this little melody. puts us unambiguously in in the key of B minor, I guess. Although, honestly, in in the context of of these instrumental tracks, as I've talked about, they're, they're in this ambiguous space. The first two notes spell out part of a B minor chord. The second two notes spell out part of an A major chord. This is these these two 
sort of like a, a sad resolution to B, a happy resolution to A, played on top of each other. Mm. That's just that's just the substance of this tune. But by the time we get to the end, and that has looped over several times, which fits perfectly well into the structure of the track called B, as soon as we land at the, at the downbeat of Silencer, then then it's it's completely in B minor and it stays there. Okay. And they've really, really intentionally made these smooth transitions. Yep. Well, it has this sensation of floating on top of everything else that's going on, mm-hmm. but not in a jarring, like, it sticks out. Like, when you hear something that isn't yep. mixed well and it's, yep. it's sitting on top. No, no, no. This is guiding, you know, it's watching a leaf or to make a, another literary reference, it's like watching sticks floating on the river like Pooh and Piglet do. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's, it's, I don't know, there's this, there's this sweetness to it, but it's also, like, yeah. very hauntingly sad. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's sort of the smooth transition happens in the opposite direction, right? Because at the end of Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt, we get this guitar sound that's introduced halfway through Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing yeah. Hurt that then continues on in to A. So flip the opposite direction. Now we have this interesting guitar riff, this really smooth, flowing, kind of volume swell thing introduced midway through B that is going to continue straight into the beginning of the next track. 